Hi, this is James Mercer from The Shins. This is Shirley Manson. This is Lowe Tolhurst, co-founder of The Cure. This is Huey Lewis giving you the story behind the song. The story behind the song is back with an exciting second season. We peel back the layers on music's most iconic hits with legendary artists like The Killers, Heart, The B-52s, Violent Femmes, Jewel, Huey Lewis, Modern English, and more. To keep the music flowing, we'll be sprinkling in classic episodes from our archives between each new one. So check out the story behind the song wherever you get your podcast. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. So you want to be a rock and roll star? No? Well, how about a podcast star? Well, as it turns out, there's a new all-in-one platform just for you. It's called Anchor, and it's the easiest way to make a podcast. And check this out. It's free. There's creation tools that allow you to record and edit your podcast right from your phone or computer. And then Anchor will distribute the podcast for you so it can be heard on Spotify and Apple Podcasts and, you know, everywhere else in, uh, in podcast land. And what's even better, you can actually make money from your podcast. Go figure. Uh, no minimum listenership on that. It's everything you need to make a podcast in one place. So go ahead. Download the free Anchor app right now or go to anchor.fm to get started. So what are you waiting for? Podcast stardom is within your reach. The music world moves fast. Want to stay up to date on the latest albums and get in-depth examinations with the artists? Check out Consequence of Sound, the podcast. Bite-sized album reviews for the music fan on the go who wants to stay in the know and much more. Subscribe to the series on iTunes or your favorite podcast provider and let the writers of Consequence of Sound steer you right. Check it out at consequenceofsound.net slash podcast. Consequence Podcast Network. Welcome to another edition of Kyle Meredith with. It's an audio interview series presented by WFPK Independent Louisville at WFPK.org. Consequence of Sound and the Consequence Podcast Network. Wherever you're listening from today, go ahead and hit that subscribe button so you can keep up with this series, whether you're checking us out on YouTube, uh, one of the uh, podcast areas, or whether you're listening on Spotify now. You can hit the follow button on there as well. I'm Kyle Meredith. Today, my guest, John Popper of Blues Traveler. Blues Traveler have a brand new album called Hurry Up and Hang Around. We'll talk about how it ties into the 30th anniversary of the band, how it also gets back to their roots with the sound. Get the stories behind the singles Accelerated Nation, uh, When You Fall Down, which John Popper actually did long after the song was recorded. And then we'll also talk about his recent divorce and fatherhood. After that, it's into the time machine to 1993 to talk about the 25th anniversary of Save His Soul. There was a motorcycle accident that kind of ruled his life around that time. He tells us about that and how that leads him to throw a bottle of urine at someone on his crew. It's a good story. And we'll get an update on plans for their album 4, which of course was their mainstream success. It turns 25 next year. It's Kyle Meredith with Blues Traveler. Hey, Kyle. How's it going? I'm great. How are you doing? 
Oh, good. I'm really yeah. excited to talk to you about this uh, this new record with Hurry Up and Hang Around. It's been a really fun listen to this one. Congratulations, man. Oh, thank you. Well, we're very proud of this one. We, we were all ready for this thing to suck, and it turns out we had some stuff. <laughs> it does. It sounds that way. It really does, that you had some stuff. I don't know about the sucking parts, but uh, I love the results. <laughs> well, you know, like on your 30th, your 30th anniversary, I, I always say this on stage, you know, it's in the handbook. Of, you know, if you want to be in the union, you got to make an album on your 30th anniversary. <laughs> that was sort of where I was going to start, too. I mean, 30 years. I, I hear this record sort of starts with that in mind. I mean, um, how much of your it's, past it's weighs on this? creepy. Um, well, a lot. Like, you know, we, I remember where all the 30 years went. It's just really weird to see what 30 years feels like. Like, it doesn't seem like that's what 30 years feels like. It always feels a little shorter than you think. But I, I, it's not like there's, like, holes in my memory. It's, it's really weird. And, um, you know, we felt like we needed to make a record for our 30th anniversary. And so, you know, we sat down. It's time to make a record. And I think... The record before this, uh, which was uh, Blow Up the Moon, was a collab record. So, you know, you're busy collaborating with other people. You don't get to do your stuff. You're re- sort of reacting to them and, uh, you know, writing with them. And so uh, you, you kind of save that song that you really wanted to just, you know, uh, unharassed do yourself. And I think everybody sort of had uh, at least parts of songs that we, we'd been saving our good stuff. And uh, it just it really happened quickly. Like in three weeks, we'd you know, really gotten the material together. And you can't do that unless you sort of have it waiting, or the parts anyway. Yeah. Yeah. Now there's a story here uh, about, you know, you guys pretty much like heading back into the, 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 the garage. And I don't know if that's a literal garage or a proverbial garage, you know, in the way you write this. But... It was a literal garage. Though, with, like we rented a house in uh, Nashville. And, you know, it, it was really a tumultuous uh, year because – We'd been actually arguing over whether we should even do a record. There, there was a faction in the band who was like, oh, records are so out. We don't even need to do that anymore. And this was kind of the problem we had with our old management at the time. is They, they didn't seem to think an album was that important. And by the time, you know, I, I, I was like a kind of dumbfounded. I was sort of like, we have to make a record. Uh, you know, like an album. It can't just like, what if we go all this way and the song does well and then we're out of songs because we just did one. It just didn't seem uh, to make sense. And, you know, eventually by the time everybody came around, it was already in our 30th year. So we were way behind and we had to like hump it. So the first thing to do is get rid of that management. That that was really, um, that's what took the time up is us deciding whether or not to get rid of these guys. And uh, it wasn't a good fit. And we found uh, another manager in a hurry. And he set us up in uh, this amazing house. It was kind of like a, some sort of MTV reality show. <laughs> and we were in there and we were writing like fiends for, I guess it was the month of March and this was in uh, 2017. And uh, in the midst of that time, that manager who was brand new got sick of us. I think me in particular. <laughs> and uh, so he quit. So now we are without management and doing this. And so while we're writing, there's a couple of weeks in there where we had to also, uh, you know, meet with pro- prospective managers. And so um, uh, we met Jeff Castellez and his crew, and we, we thought that was a great fit. And showed them what we were working on, and uh, you know he really was moved by it. And uh, we we kind of got management on the fly, and in all of this uh, complete uncertainty with uh, the whole sort of world, our world blown up around us, we kind of clung to each other, and I think that kind of helped the songs or helped us focus because there was nothing else to do but just keep working. And so uh, 
we worked on in April. We went back out on the road, and then uh, May we came back and recorded it. And um, Jeff actually uh, was also repping Matt Rawlings. And Matt Rawlings uh, has done, he's produced a, a bunch of Willie Nelson stuff and, you know, a bunch of other people's stuff as well. But he had me at Willie Nelson. And he really brought out just the stuff in us that we didn't know we had. I mean, it was really a, a lucky combination of us in this mood to, to take it further and somebody who had the facility to get us to take it further. And I, I got to give him, you know, a lot of the credit for the record, you know, the way it turned out. He really whipped us into shape, and it was an amazing process. Uh, I, I can't tell you how satisfying it was. And I think all of us knew that, and so we really uh, – it, it helps you work faster when – when you uh, work that, when you know you're onto something, it was it was a beautiful experience. I mean, you can hear it in there. You you can hear you know the the, the fun you guys are having, and 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 knowing the story, you can hear about how you know sort of things came back to to do these songs, and I guess a pure way. And I, I guess that's what I find interesting about it. You know, thirty years in, and you guys are here and now. You you find a way to make it real again. You know, you know, a bunch of guys yeah. in a room just just chiseling away and having a good time. It's it, that's. It, it sort of makes you wonder, you know, why people get away from that from time to time. <laughs> well, um, you know, you can get you're always trying to reinvent yourself. And if you start real, you can try and add to that reality. And that works for a while. But eventually, I think with us, uh, we started having a system on how to make a record. And that, that became kind of problematic. I, I do a lot of the, uh, of the lyric writing and, you know, a bunch of the songwriting. And for me, anyway, you know, I can't speak to everyone, uh, all their experience. But, you know, I think there was some version of what I'm saying. And that, that's it became redundant. It became like a cookie cutter. And that right there starts to interrupt reality because that isn't the experience you're having at the time. And so uh, I'd say around, I want to say Bastardos, uh, we started feeling like there's got to be some new way to do it. I, I know I did. And I tried becoming a total dictator. And, you know, let, let me be like a director in a movie and just tell everyone what to do. And the problem is the band, they are not robots. So that that doesn't work. What you have is a, a bunch of, you have five thinking, innovative musicians. And so North Hollywood Shootout, I'd say is where it really kind of it, almost the reverse happened. It, it, instead of me having total control, everyone was questioning everything. And so uh, that, that didn't work. That, you know, that seemed to be a, a wrong direction. And I was kind of at a quandary. And so I went off and I went with some friends of mine. I did the Dusk Great Troubadour album, which was just like a solo thing for me. But what that showed me was about collaborating with friends, you know, learning how to co-write with people. Because we'd always felt like we had to do it all in-house. And the problem is, if you're hurrying on a schedule to write albums... You start writing the same song over and over again, and that can become a problem, and that's your reality, and that's a pretty depressing reality. So you're trying to do something new, and for me, something that brought it back to reality at the time was uh, writing with friends that I trusted, and I took this back to the band. Like any experience you have outside of the band, you take it back to the band, and the band grows that way, and that became Susie Cracks the Whip, where we took 
instead of writing with friends of ours as a band, since I had my friends there and people I trusted, we could go and get professional writers we never worked with. And we discovered Ron Sexsmith and um, Alejandro Escovedo uh, and uh, Carrie Rodriguez. And we had a really great time in Austin doing that album. And where do you go from there? And that led to the collaboration album. And that I think when we were trying, we, we had such a great experience with some of the bands. I think we started getting a little too greedy and sort of uh, pursuing how many bands could we get on this album that we go and write with. And I think it became a little forced. And um, that can take you out of your reality. So I'd say from North Hollywood shootout all the way through um, the last album we did, uh, Blow Up the Moon, there, there was been a search for us to find reality. And, you know, I think we, we managed to, to find it with Susie Cracks the Whip, but it was a tenuous hold. And this is really us finding it completely by ourselves again. And I'd say that hasn't happened since uh, the record before Bastardos. Yeah. So, you know, I could say Bastardos was us starting to lose our way a little bit. Uh, I, I would say, um, truth be told, was the last time we all went in by ourselves with a good producer and just wrote and made something. So that's 2003, I want to say. So that's 15 years of us looking around for something. I, I, I could say this is arguably our best work in 15 years. You know, Susie Cracks the Whip is a is an anomaly in that. Like, I think we found something there. But the rest of the time, I think we were really looking for stuff as blues traveler anyway. And um, it, it's really satisfying to find it in, you know, what we needed was for our whole business side to just kind of implode. <laughs> we needed our management to go crazy. Uh-huh. And that really helped. Well, I, I, again, it's it's so, really evident on there. And, and as you talk about even, you know, that 30 years hanging over you, I figure that's where, you know, that first single, Accelerated Nation, fits in, too. Because this sounds like, am I wrong? This sounds like sort of a, a tribute to the fans who chase you guys around uh, a little bit. So at least that's what I took from well, it. Well, I wrote it originally, um, I think I'd probably been through a rush hour somewhere when I wrote it. It was kind of how everyone's in a car and how they're all, how everyone is motivated to get home but uh, again, I always try not to tell people what songs are about anymore because, uh, you know, truth harmonizes just like pitch does. Because you, if, if it's real to the writer, then there's something true about it that you can identify with without having to even know what it's about. I, I find that tends to be the case. Yeah. I, I've told people so many times what a song about, and they're like, it's about that? No, no, <laughs> it's about child abuse. <laughs> no. No, it's not. Yeah. You you were clearly abused as a child. It's, it's in the song. I don't feel abused. <laughs> don't um, remember that at all. That's not what it's, it's about. It's about a friend of mine going off to school. No, it's not. Somebody died. Well, let me flip it and play it the other way <laughs> yeah, there. Okay. Yeah, because, you know, you write yeah. a song called When You Fall Down, and it's got the line, the party starts when you fall down. So the the song came first, but that actually did happen over the summer, right? So we're, we're looking at a fractured shoulder and a broken um, finger. Oh yes, yes, I guess it. That was that was a prophecy right. from Ben Wilson. That that song actually Ben wrote, and that is another milestone of this album. Uh, ben has been working on some lyrics. I think in uh, again in Susie Cracks the Whip, he came up with something. And um, Ben always writes, uh, I, I write very symmetrical songs, and Ben tends to write unsymmetrical songs or asymmetrical songs. And um, he, he kind of likes that, you know, that that's sort of a, a musical bent for him. But he went back to the woodshed and he wrote um, two songs on this album, you know, the, the words and music. And um, When You Fall Down and... But Miss Olympus, 
it was another one where um, he, he really just ponied up some great imagery. And, uh, you know, I think When You Fall Down was already uh, completely symmetrical and like a well-shaped song when he brought it to us. But Miss Olympus, that's where Matt Rawlings could hear, okay, that just needs a little shaping here and there to, to just be, some, you know, some sort of symmetry that a, a listener wants to hear in a song. But it, the, the leaps and bounds that he made uh, on this album... Uh, really, you know, uh, we were proud to have it be a single. Usually when uh, they talk about Ben's song being a single, I get scared, like, oh, God, and I have to remember these lyrics. <laughs> but uh, it, it was a lot easier. <laughs> you know, yeah. I, I tend to be, uh, I tend to require some sort of a s- symmetry or a balance in order to remember lyrics, and uh, these were a lot easier. And they, the crowd loves it. It's just, um, and who knew that it would be prophetic? Yeah. Who knew yeah. that when you fall down, he was actually had a vision. He must have woken up, like the way I see it, he woke up in a cold sweat <laughs> with flashes of some sort. It was like scanners or something. And he could tell I was doomed. And let me tell you, this damn shoulder is just almost healed right about now. We finally got the word from the doctor that it's finally healing. I'd done the, an entire summer's worth of touring with Jeez. a busted rib and a busted shoulder. Jeez, man. That's... It has not been fun. Well, you know, the, the really money. frustrating part was that I wasn't even drunk yet. <laughs> I was running well, if you had been, it would have been fine. before a show in Kansas City. I was gleefully running to a bar to go get drunk. And I hadn't even been there yet. Yeah. <laughs> and I just have trouble seeing through these damn uh, bifocals. And I took the stairs wrong and yeah when i was younger that would just be a bruise right but now right. it's broken now bones it changes. It's horrible. Um, i'll ask this next part respectfully too because in that same kind of maybe sure. um way that we're talking about this song too you take a song like daddy went a gig uh-huh. and i i'm only going to bring up that recently you announced online that you were getting a divorce and and you know the family kind of splits yeah, from there yeah. does a song like that have you noticed a song like that sort of has a different context to you now in a different weight um, no, I, I tend not to uh, dwell on the meanings uh, of the songs as I wrote them at the time, because, uh, you know, uh, that was my motivation. Like, I I was in that mindset of this is what the family unit is, is me going out and coming back. And so now I'm coming back. And, you know, my, my, my ex-wife and my uh, baby are in the next room. You know, we still uh, meet up and, you know, I, I want to see the kid as much as possible. And so does my, my wife wants me to see the kid as much as possible. And that's kind of why we got married was uh, we wanted the baby. Mm-hmm. And so it, it was, we kind of got married fast, but, you know, we love each other. And uh, I, I think the motivation, you know, I still feel like a provider to them, so it's kind of the same spirit. And um, you know, the 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 agony of having to leave, you know, this is the last day that I'm with them, so I I go off and I'll see them in two weeks. There's that that's an annoying thing. And even before we got divorced, that's how it was. Is I'd see them about every ten days to two weeks because you can't bring the baby with you everywhere, especially the places we go play. And uh, you know, she wants to. See see me play more than anything she keeps telling me and so when i'm around where she lives she'll come see me but she can't ride on the bus it it just doesn't work and so you leave and the thing is that i'm discovering this now whereas everyone in my band has gone through this for the last 30 years you know and i think uh, chan and brendan did it in the early days 
They were constantly saying goodbye to their wives and children. And Brendan, to his credit, has managed to uh, stay married. And Chan didn't, but it was kept a very uh, a close home life. And it just becomes another routine. And so in that way, I still feel like I've got that family that I have to support. But yeah, I guess maybe the second verse, you know, about the woman, <laughs> I guess there's more than one woman out there now. But uh, I, I think that, uh, yeah, you still feel uh, an obligation to take care of your family. And that's part of why you can work beyond your desire to work, mm -hmm. is that there's a higher cause. And, and you know, I, I've always felt that music was a higher cause anyway. I was always motivated. And I, I think before I had a family, I, I was alone most of my life. I, I looked at it more as world conquest. You know, I, I had such a, a fire under my ass to express myself. And that in itself was the, you know, I married the road or I married show business. You know, that's kind of a corny answer. But I really did uh, need to go out and, and express myself. And, you know, there's two motivations in music that are true. And one is to express yourself and the other is to make a living. Outside of that, it's kind of bullshit. And Bill Graham told us that. And it's 100% true. Beyond the, those two motivations, um, everything else is silly. And, um, you know, I mean, think about it. What other motivations do you really have right. um, other than, I guess, witness protection? You know, it's a weird place to hide out in a, in a band, but I guess you could do it. <laughs> but the thing is, uh, I finally have that feeling of the earning a living is much more serious when you have a child. Mm -hmm. And uh, that's the thing. I have to figure out how to pay for school. And that will keep me working a lot longer than I want to be. Well, let me tell you, selfishly, that's yeah. good for the fans, though. That's a little bit of insurance for yeah, us that there's going to be some well, music in there. <laughs> it, it, it's also kind of like you discover um, this nobility in uh, everyone around you because everyone else is like, yeah, welcome to my life. Yeah. You know, I've been kind of living like a child myself up until I was 48 in that sense. You know, uh, all the money that I would earn was just for me. Now it's for other people. Right. And, and that's... That's what everyone else does. And so now I kind of, you know, I, I want to feel like incredibly noble about But what I'm doing is something very normal. And that's, that, that's kind of uh, in itself a great discovery. I, I look around and I appreciate people a little more. Well, I know we're running up against the clock here, and I definitely want to take that chance to jump back uh -huh. in the time machine for a minute to uh, the, uh, the old sure. year of 1993 and 25 years ago when Save His Soul came out. Ah, oh, those were the days. Yes, <laughs> gas cost $45 a gallon. Milk was $300 a gallon. I, right. I never knew what things cost. But, um, that, yeah, that was like it the was, calm uh, before the was, storm, uh, right? I mean, I, I feel like that record is sort of the one that well, gets you know, lost I, because I think, four come after it. Well, Save His Soul, the, the one on either side of four uh, tend to be, those two are my favorites. Mm -hmm. um, you know, Save His Soul and uh, Straight On Till Morning. And one was us without really – we had our sound men, uh, you know, our, our front of house guy, Rich Vink, and our monitor engineer, Dave Swanson, were the producers on that album. And um, it, it allowed the record company, who'd been trying to figure out what to do with us, we occupied a very strange niche. We, we'd made our own niche up. And so they didn't quite know how to get us on the radio. But when they heard, it was definitely us stepping up our game as far as writing songs. And it gave them a chance to introduce us the, to the producers. You know, they, the, the engineers who would mix it were uh, Mike Barbiero and Steve Thompson. And they became the producers. They, they, the, the record company wisely uh, introduced them to us on this album. 
and um, that enabled them to see how we work and to relate to us in a in a more honest way. And it also enabled us to learn the vast knowledge that those two had as far as being producers. It was just, I think, some of my favorite work. Um, Whoops is in there, Prophesy. And again, that was another example of the band going through a crisis because that was when I crashed my motorcycle into a car Mm -hmm. and was wheelchair-bound for the next two years. I remember I was finally able to walk as we were starting in on the vocals of four. And I could just sort of stand up. And we had to go tour then just to eat. You know, there was no uh, help from the record label as far as, um, you know, uh, supporting ourselves. And we went out and we toured and I couldn't get on a bus. I had to uh, get, for some reason, we picked a windowless van. I don't know why, but we threw a mattress in the back. And after the show, me and my wheelchair were thrown into the van (laughs) and carted off to the next gig like I was so much gear. And it was a brutal experience. We had, you know, uh, crew guys. My then monitor engineer, the, you know, the next guy, um, he was, uh, you know, being my caregiver. And that poor bastard, I think I threw a bottle of urine at him. Oh, God. Because, <laughs> uh, yeah, we, well, he, he lost my room key, and the whole place is waiting for us, and I can't get out of my room because I'm in a wheelchair. And so we're late because he misplaced the room key. And yeah, it was a very frustrating time. It was a brutal brutal existence and finally the record company uh, ponied up some money to help us survive because i think they saw what was coming but it was a brutal uh run uh existing in a wheelchair and it, it was it, you know i mean it led to diabetes and severe obesity um and you know ultimately the weight loss surgery it, it was sort of the beginning of a major health decline i was 25 years old and being in a wheelchair for two years was just a little nudge I needed over the health cliff to just start to fall completely apart. But um, it was some of the best work we did and some of the best times like leading up to it. And uh, once we got through that um, horror and I was walking again and able to ride a bus, then suddenly four happened. And, um, you know, we were it, it was one of those pinnacle moments where we changed as a band, um, partly by necessity and partly by destiny. Yeah. I feel like a 1930s movie writer. <laughs> you have uh, songs like, you know, I Manhattan mean, Bridge. And, and uh, Defense yeah. and Desire ends up being, you know, I think one of the heaviest songs you guys had ever did. And I, I, I don't know if that was because that's where sort of yeah. music was at the time, you know, just this big, heavy sound that kind of made it into that record. It's where we were. You know, we were back then we were playing, uh, you know, still playing the Nightingales uh, bar. Uh, which is where we started as a band, that, uh, in New York anyway. That was the first little shithole bar that would uh, have us as a regular band, and we wound up packing the place. And uh, we we were like the Monday shift, you know, and we had all these friends in college, so we would, and it became sort of that hippie thing was starting to happen, and um, they would show up, and there was a lot of weed at our shows. And, um, it was It was right as the Wetlands was getting going. This was like 93... And so the Wetlands was, I think that's 92 was starting to happen. So, But these were the songs that we were playing then. And we would jam for hours and we were influenced by all sorts of things. We wanted to sound heavier. And you're right, Metallica was around then. And um, we were trying to get, you know, not intentionally trying. It was just where our music was going. But we wanted those things to be, um, you know, uh, singles. Uh, Love and Greed was on there too. And, um, you know, it was really hard to get uh, the label into that. But we did. I think 
you know, we, we went to the um, alternative department at A&M to ask what we should do. And they said, no, you guys are doing it. So we, we were like too mainstream for the alternative thing that was happening in the early 90s. And we were too alternative for the mainstream. <laughs> and we didn't really know where to be and they didn't know where to put us. But they found that if we toured, we would sell 50,000 records on our own. And so uh, it became a... It became a thing where we kind of had to make our own way. And then I broke my leg, and that's when, you know, ultimately the, the label stepped in and sort of helped us out because we were really destitute at one point. And then uh, I remember the the following, you know, I guess it was two years later, uh, Al Caffaro from A&M Records grabs me and goes, we will break you on this album. And you know the funnest part of all of that, looking back, was uh, when Four went gold, um, our first album, Blues Traveler, went gold at the same time, oh, wow. and one happened by force of the Z100s and the you know the the, the paying off the uh, in you know I'm not saying payola but in the way that one hooks up the top 100 stations mm-hmm. you know top 20 stations um, and the other one went gold just organically from you know uh, almost a decade of just work and they they co- so suddenly we instantly had two gold records. And it was a really fun time. Yeah. And that's when the gold record season started. Then eventually uh, Safe as Soul went gold, and they all started going platinum. It was a just a madcap time, and then um, we were just completely underdressed. If there's one thing I can say about the... <laughs> The times when we were like white hot on the, you know, everywhere famous was uh, I really should have dressed better. <laughs> yeah, well, I always say if I had Dave Matthews ass back then, I would have really cleaned it up, you know? That's funny. Try not to be majorly obese when you're super famous. Right. Just, you know, it's a little tip there for the kids. Four does okay. turn 25 next year. I mean, do, do you guys do the celebrations or anything like that? Is that on the uh, on the cards We've or plans? At Red Rocks, but now see they're they're starting to lap each other, right? You know, because it's the 25th. Like four was in '94, and then I think I guess it was uh, once we did Travelers and Thieves was its 20th anniversary was um, no, I, I'm trying to remember. Yeah, I think it was uh, Susie Cracks the Whip's 10th year. Mm-hmm. So like. We're starting to like, you know, the newer albums are starting to coincide with the older albums. But, you know, four is a special one. So, you know, maybe we'll do something special. Hopefully by next year, people will be more interested in this album. But, you know, you can't knock four. I mean, Run Around and Hook have been, uh, I guess I want to say anthems, but uh, really what I think of is they, they help pay for my house. Yeah. So, you know, I, I will happily sing those songs till the day I die. Because uh, it's it's a really good problem to have that you have to sing a song a lot because people like it. That's right. You know, uh, that's that's kind of a it's it's a very um, gratifying. We're happy about all of it. Yeah, yeah. We're 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 grateful for our whole careers. I, I love the new record too. Hurry and, uh, up and hang around. Uh, it really is the, the fact that you guys are writing the quality this quality of music this uh, far into the career says a lot. And I really do congratulate you again on that. Well, thank you very much. We, we're looking forward to working the crap out of it. Yeah. Well, we'll be around to hear it. um, Cool. So when we're around, just come by and say hey. Absolutely. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. All right. We're playing. Yeah, come to a show. We'll we'll grab a drink. Sounds good. Well, thank you, John. Thank you so much for taking the time today. And uh, and, uh, have fun out there on the road. Don't break any more bones. And uh, we'll see you around. I will try. Yeah, Kyle, I'm not going to to move around too much. (laughs) All right, man. They're packing me in styrofoam. Take care. All right, bye. All right, you too. Bye. 
Hey, thanks to John Popper for that call right there. The new Blues Traveler record is called A Hurry Up and Hang Around. If you haven't already, go ahead and subscribe to the series right now, wherever you're listening from, whether it's at YouTube, whether it's a podcast at iTunes Podchaser, whether it's at Spotify, where you can follow along. After that, WFPK.org. That's where I do a show every Monday through Thursday from noon to 3 Eastern. You can also find some bonus episodes of this series. I'm Kyle Meredith. I'll see you next time. Consequence Podcast Network. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.